When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 223 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. Dan, how's it going, my friend? I am just relieved and pleased not to be covering Comic-Con this week. How about you, Leslie? Yeah, hard, hard same, but at, at the same time, there's not much left to cover, you know, as the writer's strike is now stretching past its 80th day. Uh, we're approaching the second week of the actor's strike around the corner, and then there, there are no signs as of the time we record this that, that the studios and streamers are going to head back to the negotiating table with either of the guilds. It's bleak out there, but uh, as evidenced by, you know, Hollywood's blink and you'll miss it presence at, at, at Comic-Con. But yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> And of course, our our thoughts go out to all of our colleagues who are covering in San Diego this week. And of course, to all of the fans, most of whom are actually perfectly happy to be back at a comic book convention after all of these years of being overtaken with uh, with general Hollywood propaganda. So hope folks have fun and enjoy a California burrito on me. Not on me, because that would imply I'm paying. I'm not actually paying for me. That's what I'm saying for me. <laughs> Stay hydrated, everybody. Number one. I did mention how bleak it is out there. There's not a lot of deals that are being made. And up first, rather than starting with our traditional headline segments, we're going to start relying on you, our loyal friends of the five, to send us your questions for what we expect to be mini mailbag segments as our new opening segments during the strike. Because, yeah, there's not a lot of deals that are being made. Not a lot of castings because obviously the actor strike is impacting that. We've seen uh, there's not a ton of news so far coming out of day one of Comic-Con, some premiere dates and first looks. But, yeah, it's 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 tough. So if you have a question you'd like to hear us address on a future episode, a.k.a. next week, Send us a note at TV's top five. That's a numeral five at THR.com. Indeed. Our first question this week comes from Chris in Denver, who asks, there were reports that the idol was renewed and canceled. What is the status of the idol? That would be, for those of you who have forgotten from two weeks ago, that weird HBO show from the weekend. Yeah, there's no official word from HBO about the future of the show. That said, everything that I'm hearing is... It's unlikely to come back. It was an expensive show. The, the, the conversation around it wasn't a good one. Uh, who knows if this is going to get into next year's Emmy race, but I would be shocked if this came back for a second season. And a lot of the sort of speculation about its cancellation was as much a piece of confusion as anything else. The confusion about whether the show was supposed to have been six episodes or five episodes, which then got 
I don't want to say reported because I feel as if the people who reported on it reported on it accurately, but then got spun around on social media as because it's a fifth episode, that means that there was an episode that didn't get aired, which meant that the season ended early. The reality of it always was that the show was a five episode show and it ended after five episodes. But if you expected it to be a six episode show, it ended early. So I think that's where a lot of the cancellation rumor speculation came from also that and people hating the show and its (laughs) ratings not necessarily necessarily being so great we i don't know that we've heard any uh kind of i don't know live live plus 60 day ratings for the idol it could absolutely be a sleeper for all i know (laughs) yeah and i mean anytime a show goes through this kind of creative reshoots and, and you know changing adding actors and changing direction there's almost always a, a price to pay for that. And that's usually episodes falling out. I mean, the same has happened with a, any other show. I mean, I think go back and look at, I think it was like American God season one and they picked it up for, I want to say like 10 episodes, but season one wasn't 10 episodes, but it didn't get reported that the show was being canceled because it didn't air 10 episodes in its first season. So that that's kind of what we're looking at here. Our second question this week comes from Chase, who writes, with the departures of Ted Lasso and the other two, plus the third and final season of Reservation Dogs, is three seasons a new trend among prestige comedies? Because many of the best comedies of the past two decades, The Office, Arrested Development, Happy Endings, Community, Veep, and You're the Worst, have had three or four great seasons in them. Dan, your thoughts? I think it... It really is kind of a, a case by case basis, and I think all of these shows uh, that Chris, that Chase mentioned, rather, they're coming at things from different angles, different conditions. So, if Ted Lasso ended the Ted Lasso story after three seasons, I, I still think most of us assume that at some point when we come out of this labor unrest, that the show or its characters will continue on in some form. Whereas the other two, hard to know exactly what happened with that yeah. show. I mean, Ted Lasso was pitched as a three-season show, period. Exactly. And, and you know, with that, there's always just the very, very basic answer of lots of people think of storytelling in terms of a three-act structure. And it makes sense that you would kind of view a story as being a three-chapter, three-arc, three-act story. Uh, and so you sort of look at the shows that that Chase mentioned toward sort of towards the end and Arrested Development. It definitely didn't end at three seasons on Fox because that was what they wanted it to do. It ended because Fox didn't want it. Then it came back on Netflix and they had two seasons that most people try to desperately to pretend never existed. Uh, Community was always kind of on the edge. Veep had a major transition with Armando Iannucci uh, stepping back and with Dave Mandel stepping in. And so there were kind of creative transitions to that. Um, And some of these shows like Happy Endings came out at the beginning when viewing habits were changing. And these companies didn't know how how to properly measure how many people were actually viewing them. Because if you look at the numbers on broadcast alone, it's negative. It's, it's, you know, infinitesimal. Whereas if you know that people are watching it on streaming, but they, you know, it's like you can't tell. These are, you know, there's a handful of shows that were really wiped out because of that. I, I think I always think Happy Endings, uh, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, a couple of the other ones of that era. Yeah. And and so I think that I think that the really good shows 
you know, there there are plenty of good comedies that have more than three or four good seasons in them. Cheers had comfortably more than three or four good seasons. The Office had more than three or four seasons. The The Office, it had more than three or four seasons. I'm trying to think if it really had more than three or four great seasons. That would that would be a different conversation. I, I think, I, you know, three, yeah. three or four probably sounds like it right for that. But in a lot of these cases, it wasn't like it was their choice to have only three or four great seasons. Things kind of unspiraled. But, you know, I'll always I will be sad consistently about Reservation Dogs ending after three seasons. But if that's what the story was, that's what the story was. Uh, Lots of these British shows obviously simply do this. So the British version of The Office was was 12 episodes and then sort of subsidiary holiday specials and movie and a movie and all of that. Something like Catastrophe was four seasons, and I don't think I would ever want to say, oh, no, it should have been more. No, it should have been exactly the number of seasons that the creators thought it could have had. I just would have probably watched those characters afterwards. So I think a lot of this has to do with, obviously, shifts in in the business. And I think that, obviously, the fact that The Simpsons is in however many hundred episodes it is, 700 plus at this point, who even knows? And while some people might say it hasn't been good since season X, and I'll continue to say that's not really true. I don't think anyone would try telling you that The Simpsons only had three or four great seasons in it. I think people, I think even the generous people who say, oh no, no, it hasn't been funnier for years would say it had 10 good seasons in it. So we do kind of lose out if there's a three season show and it's only 28 episodes and you go, wow, 28 episodes and the Simpsons gave me 750 and counting or however many. So I, you know, it's just, if the business model is changing and if syndication is very clearly not what the money is in, there isn't necessarily the same advantage to having a library of 700 shows. And and we can, we can treasure those shows that gave us, 30 episodes while at the same time in their entire run while at the same time going back and looking at some of the classic sitcoms from the broadcast era that might have done that many episodes in a single season and even if those episodes weren't all gold it at least kept you busy for all that time so so it's it's tough but but a a great show has more than three or four great seasons in it except for the shows that only had you know that only had three or four great seasons. So I don't know that there's a rule and I don't know that there's a trend, but I think Leslie went into all of the various or many of the various business decisions for why even if it's not necessarily true from a narrative point of view that that's what these shows have in them. That's what we're getting. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And a reminder, send us your questions to be featured in each episode of TV's Top 5. And as a special bonus, if you send along your mailing address and a self-addressed stamped envelope, if you live out of the country, we'll send you a TV's Top 5 Friend of the Five sticker. So you heard it here first. TV's Top 5, that's a numeral 5 at THR.com. Leslie is really big into those stickers. They're cool. They are are cool. They are cool. Absolutely. Number 2. Up second, we've talked about how the industry is changing and a lot of the various streamers have been consistently having bad news and looking at it as a sign of disaster. This week, Netflix announced earnings and at least on some of the levels, folks seem to be pretty happy with how Netflix is doing. Maybe if you dig a little bit deeper, maybe not so happy. So Leslie, what do we know? What did Netflix tell us and what does it really mean? Well, this week, Netflix was the first member of the AMPTP, which again represents the studios and streamers, to report earnings amid Hollywood's historic dual strike. The streaming giant reported that it added nearly 6 million new paid subscribers. 
That topped Wall Street expectations. It now has nearly 240 million global subscribers. At the same time, Netflix this week also announced that it was killing off its cheapest ad-free plan, the basic $10 a month one, with the hopes that those subscribers will now transition to its $7 a month ad-supported plan or the $15.50 standard ad-free plan. So basically... No more free stuff for a, a, a minimum payment for ten bucks with no with no ads. Instead, if you you want to save some money, you can watch ads for seven bucks. Or if you want to continue having Netflix ad free, you got to pay a little bit more per month. Obviously, the push is big part of a larger move by Netflix to increase revenue for its ad, newly launched ad tier. Again, Netflix is essentially becoming a broadcast network here, Dan. <laughs> Which is what we've been talking about now for. For months, and it's representative of what the overall shift has been. You know, if we if we look at other news this week, and it would have been in headlines, but but Peacock uh, raised its subscriptions, became the last of the major streamers to actually raise prices from its original price, and they similarly made a very clear emphasis. Uh, you add a buck if you want the version with the ads, and that's six bucks. But if you want to be on ad free two bucks up and now up to $12. And what it comes down to is everybody is realizing that a subscription model is not where anyone is making money, where they're making money is by getting people to watch advertisements. How shocking that that would be what they would discover that because going back to what Leslie said just three minutes ago, they're becoming broadcast networks. So I guess this is kind of what everybody... <laughs> Some people saw this coming, to be sure. Definitely the Netflix executives who said, we'll never do a, a an ad tier. They didn't see it coming, but now they're, now they're all in. And so better get right. used to so it. So what happens when your subscribers plateau, when your subscriber gains slow? You need to find other revenue streams, right? We've talked before, uh, way back when Shonda just re-upped her deal at Netflix, that she's getting into more live experiences. That's a revenue stream. And if... You know, and while those things like a Stranger Things drive through and the Bridgerton experience are definitely adding revenue to, to the pot at Netflix, it's not enough. Hence the ad tier. And that's why everyone is doing that. HBO Max or Max, whatever we're calling it now, has it has an ad tier. Everything. Disney Plus has an ad tier. The whole point of streaming in the beginning was here, watch this, stream it online, watch when you want. And by the way, you don't have to watch commercials if you don't want to, if you want to pay a little a little more. So they basically shot themselves in the foot. They took the traditional business model, shat all over it, and said, we can do better. And instead, we're going to sit here and spend billions of dollars on content. We're going to put it on this platform and hope that you subscribe, which it was the, the HBO model. But HBO was part of a cable bundle that you had to pay for $15 a month right, as an add-on. And so we're going to take that model, and except we're going to blow it up, and we're going to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on content. And oh shit, our subscribers slowed. Oh shit, the Bridgerton experience and Stranger Things, it's not enough money to bring in to offset the $250 million we've paid the Game of Thrones creators to make one show that's less than 10 episodes and is going to premiere who knows when. Anyway, I'm ranting here, but you get the point. <laughs> and, and of course, as always in these circumstances, nobody is really giving any particular consideration to the, uh, the artistic side of it. Um, I've spent the last couple of weeks watching a bunch of stuff on various uh, SVOD and fast services and um, and seeing 
where the ad breaks get stuck in and who actually seems to have a legitimate ad load and who makes you watch the exact same commercial for Subway sandwiches seven times in a single uh, one hour drama. And I don't know that anyone has really figured out where the ad breaks are supposed to go. And so like anyone who has written for broadcast television will tell you that there is an artistry to writing in and out of an ad break. It might be a thing that annoys the hell out of them, but it is a thing that they have been trained to do. Whereas if you have all of these shows that were not designed to have ad breaks and now you're just saying, okay, well, stick your ad for Subway in the middle of a conversation or try to stick it in between scenes. But it's not like anybody is sitting and going through it, or maybe someone is, they're just doing a bad job going through episodes of television going, ah, here is the perfect place in which we can insert a commercial. No, it's it's kind of a, maybe there's a fade to black that takes an extra quarter of a second and somebody's sticks an ad in there regardless of of narrative flow it's not the way that you're supposed to watch things but of course you know because we're old we grew up watching lots of movies on on uh basic cable and and just having to deal with the idea of commercials throughout the exciting movies and where you stick an ad break that's going to sap the drama of an action thriller or something and that was just the way we watch movies similarly with uh with, you know, various censorship of language and other things. And people obviously enjoy the various censored kind of airplane cuts of different movies with lots of swearing, et cetera. So no one can, none of this has anything to do with either the experience of an artist attempting to tell a story or a viewer attempting to watch a story and get immersed in the rule in the world. These are not even tertiary concerns, basically, they want to stick ads and things, and it doesn't even matter at this exact moment if it, it's even clear that advertisers are fully committed to these business models. I mentioned again, finding myself watching the exact same Subway ad seven times in an episode of a TV show, which is not uncommon if you watch something on Freebie or something on Tubi or whatever. Is There's just there's not a wide diversity of advertising that has been integrated into these worlds yet, but that's where the money is. And so that's where people are going. And, and if you want the ad free experience, which I continue to want, but the more you raise up the prices on that, at some point people start going, what is the value of my annoyance or lack thereof? And everyone's got a different answer for that one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, shifting back to, to Netflix too, the, my favorite part of this is the streamer also wrote in its earnings report that it sees its top 10 lists help understand what success looks like on Netflix and that it hopes other streamers become more transparent about engagement. I can't even say that without chuckling because those top 10 lists are completely meaningless. They are algebraic equations that still don't reveal the simple data, including completion rates, that they have in spades. So pat yourself on the back, Netflix, for for your, your top 10 lists, but Still streaming transparency now. Yeah, giving people a widget that they can use to uh, register a very, very, very small window of success that hasn't been quantified is is not really transparency. And and we we are not going to buy into anyone calling that transparency. Not on this podcast. It might be. It might be more data and more grist for some sort of intellectual mill, but it is not transparency. I don't know what transparency looks like, but I do know what transparency doesn't look like. And this is not transparency. It, it feels like an ad for its own content. That's well, what it feels like to me. And that is, that's, that, I mean, again, that is just a, my opinion. But that is, of course, what an earnings call is going to be. And, and all of, you know, all of this subscriber boost or some of it or much of it, I, 
Or really, do we want to just say all? Because I don't know if Netflix has had a program that would have justified this bump. It's basically people who who were sharing their passwords now X number of them having to buy additional uh, yeah. subscriptions. So, but is that is that truly? <laughs> Is, is that long-term growth or was that people making a transition and now people are going to see that they aren't getting as much for their value, their money as they thought they were? And are people going to cancel those subscriptions? I, I don't have an answer to that. And yeah. And will people cancel subscriptions if the content, if the, the flow of content slows because of the strikes? So all, all things to keep an eye on, but uh, yeah, we'll be, I'll be interested to see how the rest of this earnings season plays out and if the other conglomerates post rosy forecasts like like the way that Netflix did this time. So stay tuned. Number three. Up third, we're continuing with another one of these topics that we told you we'd be monitoring for uh, for months and we told you was coming. And how could anyone not have told you it was coming? Because we just did a segment on this well, last week. I mean, remember the upfronts back in May? I, I feel like I just did this exact same introduction last week. Everyone put out their schedules. Lots of the schedules had original programming. We said, there's no way that original programming is actually going to be on a schedule. If everyone's on strike, they're going to have to put out a new schedule. And yes, more new schedules are indeed being put out. What was this week's schedule? I don't know. Evolution? Adaptation? (laughs) Trashing? You know what? Let's just call it what it is. It's a schedule reboot, Dan. They're so rebooting what we- their schedule. Yeah. So CBS was first up. They finally acknowledged the strikes. And rather than the new episode of its tried and true procedurals and comedies that they had announced to advertisers in May, the network now is tapping into its corporate siblings to fill out its schedule. <clears throat> Headlining that lot is Yellowstone, the Kevin Costner Paramount Network series that currently streams on Peacock. That will now be edited for broadcast, as well as Paramount Plus shows, including SEAL Team, which was originally a CBS show. Keep up with me if you can. And then the UK edition of Ghosts, which inspired the CBS comedy of the same name. So you've got the UK version of Ghosts, which is available to stream not on Paramount Plus, I believe. SEAL Team, which previously aired on CBS, but then was canceled and then moved to Paramount Plus as an original for reasons that I don't fully understand. And Yellowstone, which if I'm Peacock, I'm pissed off because you've paid for that exclusivity and now here you've got cbs which is you know reaches more homes than peacock airing it but albeit edited so yeah the network also stretched out its summer tent polls including big brother into the fall and added three new unscripted shows to bolster the schedule that will now include repeats shocker of ncis fbi young sheldon ghosts and blue bloods so that's just at cbs we'll get into nbc in a second but dan you've got to have thoughts about yellowstone being edited for broadcast my, my only thoughts and i and this is how i described it on twitter is that it very much felt to me like somebody going into their the going into the cushions of their corporate of their corporate sofa and seeing what they could find underneath it and and bringing it out that and that is what this feels like it's also yeah. it's like predi- didn't we have dexter during you know, the last strike with we, edited for broadcast we did indeed and that and that's look that's predictable. I, you know, I, I don't think anyone at this point gets credit for thinking ahead of time because they've now reached a point at which this is absolutely more desperation than creativity. 
the thing about CBS, though, is that CBS will always be able to sit back and say, we have TV shows that repeat anyway. And that's been the thing that CBS has been able to say for years that other networks haven't been able to say. My perspective on ratings kind of kind of died when I stopped having to do morning rating stories uh, when I when I left my last job and God bless. Uh, but it was always the most reliable thing is that those repeats of various NCIS shows back then it was repeats of big bang theory. They would reliably be drawing larger audiences than the first run shows on several of the other networks. And that's been a thing that CBS has always known that they had in their back pockets. So while ABC schedule only included one shows repeats, that being Abbott elementary, it makes sense that CBS would do this. Now, as for, as for bringing in ghosts of the UK variety, I mean, sure, why not? I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's going to get excited, and I don't know what the boost is for the for the American mothership now, or I guess maybe not mothership since it's the secondary ship. And as for Yellowstone, this is probably pretty just logical and it will probably do a larger audience than a lot of the other alternatives so why not as to what its content is if you if you think that yellowstone is some wonderfully sacred text that should never be altered or adulterated in any way you might not think this is the pure original version of yellowstone and maybe that actually does benefit peacock honestly maybe i'm sure somebody at peacock has done the rationalization that once people get sick of seeing yellowstone with the cursing uh bleeped or whatever they choose to do and and with whatever other content there is that's really adult um <laughs> that that maybe people will be like i don't want to watch it in this way let's go to peacock and either they'll sign up for one of the you know for the more expensive ad package or the even more expensive ad-free version, regardless, somebody at Peacock has to be believing this will benefit them because people will get annoyed by censored versions. I, I think probably the CBS audience will be just as happy to watch it in this form, but probably the CBS audience already is the audience that's watching Yellowstone in its original version anyway. So look, this is just everybody doing what they can. And does this seem more or less desperate than any other version? I don't know, but more importantly, it is desperation. So it should seem desperate. There's there's nothing there's no circumstance in which this is not a sign of desperation. So it should probably be approached as that. Yeah. Um, speaking of NBC, though, they've pulled back plans for Night Court, which was one of a handful of shows that continued production after wrapping season one. And they've also scrapped plans to air the new John Cryer comedy, Extended Family. Both of those were bumped from their fall schedule this week. Instead, the network is going to supersize The Voice to two hours, air a second edition of Dateline, and has bumped up Magnum P.I. from midseason to the fall, where it will be one of the very few scripted originals to air new episodes alongside the likes of Quantum Leap, which, like Night, Night Court, continued production and had was able to complete, I believe, nearly a full season. Then you've also got the new Greg Berlanti-produced rookie drama Found and the Jesse L. Martin drama The Irrational, as well as the Canadian import Transplant. So you've got new scripted on NBC coming in the fall, including the returns of Magna P.I. and Quantum Leap and two new shows, plus this Canadian show. Those are going to be bolstered by repeats of six 
Dick Wolf shows on primetime. So they pulled back the comedies because while well, they wanted to, to package John Cryer's new show with Night Court, which, which makes a ton of sense, but Night Court didn't have enough episodes. So instead, they're going to hold back the comedy and, and move up Magnum P.I. But NBC and and hats off to Susan Rovner for, for doing this. And she's obviously now looking for work, but hats off to Susan Rovner for, for getting ahead of things and, and positioning NBC really well heading into the fall with these decisions. But it is part of a larger conversation that's happening everywhere about should these shows be moved up or should they hold them back? Because who knows how long these strikes are going to last. And and that's the thing. I, I think, you know, I talked about relative level of levels of desperation. I think in the short term, NBC's schedule looks less desperate. I think it, it absolutely looks like they're saying, okay, well, we have these things, let's air them. But if the strike continues into, you know, like God forbid, if the strike continues into November or December or beyond, and for the sake of the industry, we hope it does not. Uh, but, you know, if if that happens, then you're going to see the desperation kick in. That's when this stuff that they've been saving for a rainy day if the rainy day stretches for two days, what do you do on day two of the rainy day? That's when, that's when the crazy stuff starts coming out of, out of NBC. But yeah, and, I mean, we, and we saw that honestly during COVID too, like during the, the quarantine part of the pandemic where there were all these reunion specials and they did the Disney stuff with the stars appearing via zoom and doing like a sing along and things like that. I mean, that was great for the time, but there's no way that that's going to happen because you already have the actors on strike and writers are on strike. So there's not going to be any of these reunion specials or anything like that, even if they're fundraisers for the entertainment guilds, et cetera. So anyway, it's, it's a different ball of wax. It is. And, and as, as the, <laughs> as the various guilds keep saying, and as we keep repeating, strikes are supposed to be disruptive. And this is absolutely disruptive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply number four up next we return to the strike zone as the SAG after strike heads into its second week. We're joined this week by Justine Bateman, the writer, director, and producer who most recently served as a consultant on the use of artificial intelligence for the performers unions negotiating committee. Bateman, who of course rose to stardom with her twice Emmy nominated role as Mallory Keaton on family ties has a degree in computer science from UCLA and is also a member of the writers guild SAG AFTRA, as well as the directors guild. She previously served on the Screen Actors Guild's National Board of Directors. Justine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So getting started, you were on the National Board of Directors for SAG and resigned back in 2009 over a contract that you felt 
didn't properly acknowledge the shift from old media to new and didn't honor the guild's less visible members. How many of the seeds of your frustration from back then do you see as being at the heart of where we are today? Well, Leslie, that's a that's a good little tidbit you dug up. Uh, yeah, I think it was a couple months short of my uh, you know entire uh, obligation to to the board of SAG. This was in 0708, and um, really the the reason I resigned is I had worked so hard. I was working in digital media as a writer and producer. I saw that online. It's going to sound odd to people right now, but. Not many people were convinced that online, you know, back then it was called made for new media, now called streaming, but 90% of the business was not convinced that that was going to be just a new place to distribute stuff. I was already working in it and I, I implored the negotiating committee, we've got to get real estate and the AMPTP was saying, hey, don't put any restrictions on this you know, work with us. We don't know where this is going. We don't know if we'll be able to make any money at this at all. And I said, listen to me, it is another way to distribute. That is all. I said, you've got to get real estate. We got a little bit. And I was hoping that the membership would reject it as would recognize it as not being enough. And they approved it so overwhelmingly that I thought, wow, I am like, I'm working so hard, so, and, and there's a lot of hours you commit to being on the board of a union, you know, and to be on the negotiating committee. And, uh, I just thought, what am I fight? What exactly am I fighting for? Like at that point I was still acting and, you know, I could like set my own terms, but I mean, I was fighting for the default to be a particular level for all the other actors. And I thought, man, if they don't, they appear to not want me to even fight for it. There was a lot of, ah, oh, come on, you guys, stop it. Let's just get back to work. And I kept saying, there is no back to whatever you think we had in the 80s and 90s. There's no back to that. We need to have proper, and we're in the same situation. And the difference between then and now is people are listening to me and others who are saying, hey, AI is the end of the road. If you give away your consent and compensation, if you want to participate in it, I personally, as a filmmaker, have no interest in it whatsoever. But if you don't put that as the default for writers and actors in particular, you've just given them the keys to the whole house. If they can use 100 years of acting performances to train their generative AI models and create their little Frankenstein characters or, you know, actors, quote unquote, you're, you're over. So... That's the big difference now. I mean, there's a lot of other uh, elements, you know, one being, I think people in all kinds of business sectors are sick of all this, this corporate greed is just out of control. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's the big difference between then and now. Well, you have, as you say, you've been a, a fairly vocal and fairly absolutist uh, critic of AI, both its encroachment in art, but also into sort of more wider reaching society at large. I I'm curious, was this a fascination of yours before you went back to school and got your computer science degree? Or was it something that kind of began to pique your interest as you were at UCLA? Okay, so I went to UCLA in uh, 2012, graduated in 2016 with that computer science and digital media management degree. And the AI class at the time, uh, you know, 
it was basically, you know, chess games and ways and, and, um, uh, recommendation algorithms and things like that. And so there's a lot of combinatorics and statistics and all of this that are in the, in the blender, if you will, right. In the AI blender, and you have to feed it a bunch of material, you know, for those who, who don't know, generative AI can only function if you feed it a bunch of uh, material, you know, in the film business, it, it, it constitutes our, our past work. Otherwise it's just an empty blender. Can't do anything on its own. Um, so that's what we were looking at at the time and machine learning, generative AI has just exploded since then. So, so no, this, this aspect of it was not a fascination of mine. I mean, computer science was obviously that's why, you know, put the, put in the blood, sweat and tears to get that degree. Um, but no, when I, when I could see that it was going to be used to widen profit margins in white collar jobs and more generally replace human expression with our past human expression. I just went, this is, this is like an end. This is an end of the progression of society. I mean, if we just stayed here. If, if, do you know what I mean? It just, it'd be like, if you keep recycling air, you know, eventually there's nothing breathable. So if you keep recycling what we've got from the past, you have nothing new, nothing new will ever be generated. You will never have you. I mean, if, if generative AI started before, you know, uh, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, we would never have had jazz, rock and roll, film noir. I could go on and on and on. So that's what it stops. Um, there are some, I guess, useful applications to it. Uh, I don't know of that many. <laughs> but pulling it into the arts is absolutely the wrong direction. Do, yeah. do you remember a point where you kind of had had that epiphany or that eureka moment? Because it it's the kind of thing where you hear AI and the initial reaction is always, okay, that sounds cool. And then it shifts into that sounds scary. Do you remember the that sounds scary moment for you? Yeah, I totally do, Daniel. Um, a friend of mine is a video artist and he's he's really good, really talented guy. In fact, for my film Violet, he did all those violent cutscenes that I have in the beginning credits and then that I interspersed through the film. Really talented guy. And he started posting, this was back in like January, February, he was posting all this AI generated animation. And I, I asked him, because he's so talented, he's not just some, you know, buddy, insurance agent or something is playing around with some app, right? I mean, this guy's an artist. And I said, well, how much of this are you actually drawing or doing or whatever? And he goes, oh, none of it. Wow. And I thought, oh, my God. Now, I'll bring in another component here. For a very long time, I have been dismayed at the, first of all, the word, using the word content to relate, to describe TV and series. I think it's offensive. But also... I was equally disappointed at the amount of simply content that we've had. 
the number of uh, showrunners I've heard who are told is one of their main notes from the streamers, this isn't second screen enough. <laughs> Meaning the viewer's primary screen is their phone and their laptop. And we don't want anything on your show to distract them from their primary screen. Because if they get distracted, they might look up, be confused, and go turn it off. They want it as, I heard somebody use this term before, um, they want visual music. And so when showrunners are getting notes like that, are they able to do their best work? No. And when these companies control the entire pipeline from beginning to end, then you wind up doing what they ask. So I thought, oh my God, what am I doing in this time? I don't make these kinds of projects. Um, why am I in this time? Why aren't I in the 70s or something like this, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I was a kid back then, but why aren't I like a filmmaker? You know, why am I here right now? When is this going to end? When are we going to flip into some kind of genre? Because we haven't have a genre, a genre of, of real significance in the arts since the 90s. So I was like, when is that going to, when is tech not going to be like center stage? Oh my God, get off the stage. And then I realized when I saw my friend's animation and I went, oh my God, I get how content is going to end. Content is very predictable. It can be automated. AI is going to automate content. It's going to check all, you know, if you've got woke boxes you need to check, it's going to check all of those. If you've got, um, and you customize to each viewer, you know, what are you into? What are you into? We'll customize the, the project according to your, your, you know, years of your viewing history. And I thought, okay, great. AI is going to automate content. It's going to, and then after people uh, get sick of the the AI stuff after the novelty wears off and they'll be able to put themselves in the projects and so forth. And after they get sick of that, I think it'll be like the end of, um, uh, uh, supersize me, you know, where it sounds like a good idea. You get to eat McDonald's every day, but then at the end of it, you just feel sick. And I, I think once the, um, the viewers get to that point, then they'll not only reject that, but they'll reject content too. They'll reject anything prior to the generative AI explosion that even resembles it. Because don't forget, this is going to happen in a lot of other areas. It's going to toss their sense of reality. There's going to be a lot of scams uh, with voice cloning. And I, I really encourage people to get a password, put your phones in the other room because half your apps are listening to you and get a password with your family. So when your daughter or father or something calls, quote unquote, and says, I've been, I've been kidnapped and you need to send me some money. You can say, what's the password? And if they don't have it, then you just hang up. Um, anyway, there's going to be so much of that. People are going to not know what to trust as far as what they see and what they hear. And I think they'll reject, start rejecting then AI films. They'll reject content that even resembles AI films. Anybody's using filters right now. Anybody who's got plastic surgery, maybe they'll just start saying, I, I don't, I don't trust it. I don't trust it. And they'll want, I think after that point, they'll want films and series that are really human, really raw. So they'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll feel rest assured that this is made by a human. It's real and I can relax and watch it. I'm not being sort of scammed by AI. 
you know, AI didn't start out as a central issue within the Writers Guild or SAG after, but has obviously become one very rapidly. As, as someone who's been so involved with the negotiations, specifically uh, with the guilds, what does the AMPTP's response to both the performers and the writers on the use of AI signal to you? When I heard the response, so right, so I have a computer science degree from UCLA, and I was on the the board and the negotiating committee, uh, SAG, around 0708. And I've been doing all these tweets. So yes, SAG asked me to come be like an AI consultant on these negotiations. So I have been in those rooms uh, for you know this, this round too. When I saw the response, now don't forget, I told you the response that the AMPTP had about getting, getting real estate for made for new media back in 0708, their response was work with us. We don't know if there's any money in this. When I saw the response to the AI asks from the WGA, when I saw the response was, we're not talking about that, I went, oh my God, they're already doing it. Like this is already so far along. That's what that answer signaled to me. Um, and then their asks of SAG, I have to be a little careful because I was in the rooms, but you know, as far as what Duncan Crabtree Ireland has revealed, you know, that they wanted to be able to take background actors, um, scan them once, pay them a day's rate, and then use their image for the rest of their lives. And somebody brought up a, a good point yesterday. They said, now, what if that background performer, like, makes it as an actor? Then does this, the, you know, studio or NVIDIA or whoever owns the studio in two years says, Oh, congrats, but tough. We're, we're going to use, we own your image. Um, and then the other with the actors, you know, wanting to just feed in a hundred years of actors' performances into a generative AI model um, with no consent. So to use all of this past work, and it's, and I feel a particular responsibility to past actors' work, you know, actors who are no longer with us. They fought at some point for all these, and for writers too, and directors too, all the, um, all the, uh, everything that's in the MBAs of these unions were fought for by those people in the past. So it's our responsibility now that technology exists to change their work. I feel a very strong responsibility to protect their work. And it's not our place to say, sure, go ahead, feed in, you know. Yeah. All of Charlie Chaplin's work, all, all of, you know, um, Alfred Hitchcock's work, every, you know, just go ahead. And then, you know, and then you can just call up. I want somebody who does, you know, moves like Charlie Chaplin, looks like Alec Baldwin, has a Spanish accent in the style of Alfred Hitchcock or whatever, and just order it up. So that's, so when I, so to answer your question, Daniel, when I see that, I, Everything I'm saying is going to happen is exactly what they're wanting to have happen. Uh, one of the things I've, I've found interesting is is sort of the latching on to the idea of the background actors, um, because that's something where you can sort of tangibly point out that is a whole sector of the workforce that they are trying to eliminate from the equation. I, I'm curious, in the conversations you've had with the AMPTV, but also with people who have who maybe aren't in the industry, do you feel like they don't? understand the way that this 
would impact that sort of lower segment of the acting population um, or that they're actually kind of willfully trying to eliminate it? I think they get it. I think if I think they get it because they, they see that and don't forget, it's not AI isn't doing this to us. People using AI to eliminate jobs. That's who's doing this in every sector. And I think people really understand that concept because it's happening in their worlds too. There are legal offices that are uh, eliminating their paralegals in favor of using ChatGPT. There are audiobook uh, recording companies that are eliminating all the, you know, firing all the people they had in their corral to record audiobooks because they have, uh, they can just subscribe to something for $20 a month. Uh, AI voices, you know. Voices. Yeah, I mean, there was a story in the New York Times last night that said that uh, Google is testing um, AI software for to help uh, publications and reporters. I mean, that's meant to to like help us do our jobs, but that's horrifying. Well, and and I mean, you hit right on it, Leslie. Like, you have this job, and Daniel, you have this job because you love it. I mean. This is this is whether you love it or not. You are you are you're locked in. Like this is your this is your calling. Okay, this is where you're supposed to go. Maybe you tried to do something else and it pulled you back like a rubber band. So to take that from you to say, hey Leslie, why don't I just do that for you? It's like, uh, wait, you know, it's like you got a chocolate cake in front of you. It's like, why don't I just let me eat that for you? It's like, I just no, get away from me. It's like an annoying assistant at this point. It's like, let us do this. And the idea that it's like, you want to make things easy for us, go solve the homeless problem. Go use generative AI for that. Or go use generative AI to like clean the ocean or protect the coral. Or, I mean, some don't come in and say, we want to make life easy for you. We'll have it do your job. It's like, well, I like my job. I love doing my job. I get a lot of fulfillment from it and I make money at it. So no, you can't take that from me. I don't want you to take that from me. So it's interesting that it's, and then you see, like, why would somebody, your boss, want to use that kind of service? It'd be so, it doesn't have to pay, or it, the, the, the company, right? Wouldn't have to pay you and any fringes you have, insurance, 401ks, uh, wouldn't have to get, you know, any, you know, company bonding events together, parking places, offices. That's a lot of overhead to get rid of. Is it going to, I mean, let me ask you this. Do you think they would want to bring this service in? Cause it's going to make the news better. No, no, it's, it's going to make it cheaper. Yeah, exactly. So is generative AI coming in the entertainment business to make better films? No, it's to much more cheaply regurgitate the past. And frankly, audiences have been conditioned for this. Look at all the sequels and reboots and remakes. And I mean, my God, it's, it's most of what we look at. <laughs> I mean, there is some good news, I think, on the other side of this. I don't know if I already said. I was, I was waiting other... for the good news. Let's get to the good news. <laughs> well, I think on the other side of this inferno, there's going to be a new finally like we haven't had significantly since the 90s, a new genre. There's going to be something new. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it is exactly, but I think we'll finally have like something new, like a like a new breath 
in the arts. And when something new comes through the arts, it infiltrates every, it, it changes everything. I mean, we've seen, you know, in history over and over and over again, how much change through the arts has, um, has changed society. And we haven't really had anything like that for 20 years. Well, earlier this week, uh, Mark Ruffalo made the point that this was a good argument to maybe be considering looking more to the indie world to maybe in the future be getting out from under the sway of the studios and production companies that are so much a part of what the AMPTP is. And you you amplified that and echoed that. And that's where you've done a lot of your work. Your feature was not a studio feature. Um, what do you sort of see as being what this turns the industry into if people take the advice that you put out there that Mark Ruffalo put out there where does it leave the business and is it your business to worry about where that leaves the Zaslovs and Igers of the world I wish we had the paramount decrees uh, in a more substantial way. Remember, I think this is from the thirties or something where they, they said to the studios for anyone who's not, who doesn't remember you own Paramount, Paramount 20th, whatever you own the entire pipeline, you make it, you are the exhibitors, you have the, you have, you have the cinemas and this is, you know, there's no, no competition is possible here. So they made them choose. You want to own cinemas or do you want to do the work? Fin sin rules were the same thing, right? That we had for TV. They said the networks, you want to, and they did allow them to keep like, uh, I think soap operas and news, but they said, look, you, you can't own the whole pipeline. You can either make the show or have a network, which do you want to do? And when the FinCEN rules went away in 2023, I think, or sorry, that's this year. Uh, it went, went away in, in 1993. Um, then you had NBC making NBC show and then putting the reruns on Bravo, an NBC-owned yeah. entity. Yeah, vertical okay. integration, which we so, talk a lot, a lot about on this podcast. So I wish, and actually uh, myself and a, and a few others uh, spoke. Uh, the FTC had uh, open comments this morning, and we all spoke about, you know, please come back in. This is your whole, this is your raison d'être. Like, come on in and break these companies up. You know, I mean, we're negotiating against not not just the biggest companies in our business, but the biggest companies in the world and arguably in all of history. So come in, we welcome you, come do your job. But to get back to what you asked, Daniel, doing independent film essentially does that, right? It's independently financed, it's independently made. And then you take that film that has no ties to an, a studio or a streamer yet, and you get the best, you get them to bid against each other like you see at film festivals for the best deal. And that, I, that would put us in a much better situation, but I would say to actors of the level of Mark Ruffalo and others, please ask your agent to show you the independent film offers because you are being offered independent films. Now, the studios have kind of wrecked the offer um, arena because they throw so much money at the actors right now that when we come along with our, you know, smaller offers, the agents maybe are going, ah, I'm going to make 10% of what? I'm going to 10% of $100,000. I'm going to make 10% of $40 million. I'm going to 
press maybe maybe that got lost in the you know i'm not i'm not saying they maybe they give their clients all the offers maybe they don't i'm not sure but i just encourage actors well-known actors to do one of two things if they're interested in independent film either tell your agents i want to see every single offer that comes in when it comes in also contact any all the filmmakers, all the directors and writers whose work you like and tell them you'd like to work with them because one of the only ways that independent film gets funded is when you have uh, known actors attached. And that's just a fact. So if you want to hit your, if you're a well-known actor and you want to hit your wagon to a filmmaker whose work you really like, um, just reach out to them. It's never been easier, either through their agents or through, you know, DM them on social media. You know, um, moving on a little bit, you're, you're running for the WGA West board. We've talked a lot. What? Oh, I, I, you can't run for, um, I found out from, cause I'm on the DGA Western council mm-hmm. and uh, I found out that it is in their, um, const- well, it's in their rules that you can't be on to, uh, boards. You can't be on running. So I can't, I can't maybe next go around. I mean, I can, but I would have to choose, but I like being on the DGA, uh, Western council. So, so I'm going to wait, but I am a delegate for WGA or for DGA. Maybe I'll wind up on the DGA board. I don't know. Um, you know, a, a lot of people right now are obviously talking about the DGA because there was a point where it looked like Hollywood's three big unions, the writers, the directors, and the actors, could all go out on strike at the same time. That didn't happen. The DGA took a deal with the AMPTP. Uh, it was a pretty big margin among those who voted, less than 50% voted. But for you, as a member of the DGA and, and so as someone who's intimately involved with the Guild, how did you vote on, on the contract? And do you think that there was a missed opportunity there? I think unless you'd been really looking at what's happening in generative AI, I think the point at which the negotiations started, SAG was in a different position because they'd been dealing with deep fake stuff for a, for a little while now. Um, WJ is on it because because they're writers, because they're like reading everything all the time, right? So, I mean, their WGA leadership is, and those members are always pretty much ahead of things. And I think for the DGA, I think two things. I think, first of all, I think they negotiated um, for what they feel covers their members. So I'm not mad at them for that. I mean, if you have minimum staffing requirements already in your MBA, and then on top of it, you say, None of those minimum staffing requirements can be fulfilled by anything, you know, anything but a human. I think in their minds that that kind of covered uh, keeping their their members employed. Okay, what I would have liked to see, and maybe this can be done legislatively, and or done with uh, any restrictions that SAG gets, is this what I said earlier about restricting the ability for the AMPTP to to just feed in all these past directors' work. I don't think that is our place to allow. I think we need to block that. So I would have liked to have to have had that in in the um, DGA agreement. 
Um, but like I said, if you have that in the SAG agreement, it takes care of it for the directors. Because if you can't get all those actors that you want to feed in to sign off, you can't feed the whole film in. And, and how did you vote on the DGA deal? Um, I voted against it just because I was hoping for those kinds of protections. Um, but that wasn't what the majority of the membership uh, was seeking. And so I am part of, you know, a guild. I fully support the DGA and it's a, you know, ratification ratifying um, agreements is a democracy. And if the majority of the members are okay with what it's like, then that's what we're going to live by. And that's okay with me. I feel, like I said, I feel a personal responsibility to protect, you know, past directors work. And so I will look to find other ways to maybe accomplish that. I mean, the other thing that, you know, we talked, we touched on this a little bit, um, obviously you're now that we know that you're not running for the board, but this is an election year. So what do you make of the dynamic with both SAG-AFTRA and the WGA of leaders running for re-election or election during a strike? Well, actually, um, I mean, you have SAG, WGA and, and DGA are all, uh, you know, it's an election cycle for all of them. Did you just say that? Yeah. Um, so what do I think about that happening during a strike? Yeah. Well, I mean, people might want to change or they might do what they do in presidential elections during, you know, intense times, you know, U.S., you know, government election where they want to uh, stay the course. Um, we'll see. I mean, you know, I don't know that, I don't know, has a presidential election ever been like delayed because there was a war on or something? So... You know, it happens. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm a DGA delegate and, um, uh, you know, if, if they'll have me, uh, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to see if I can be of use on the DGA board. You know, the other piece is right now SAG has a very hardline tactics, but do you think that that's largely because it is an election year for the Guild? I like to think it's because I've told the the uh, negotiating committee, like, don't do it. If you give away, you have all these issues, you know, and it's like you've got a house and you need to redo the kitchen. You re need, need to redo the, the bathroom and the, uh, you know, the, the master bedroom hasn't been redone for 40 years and you want to do all these things. But AI is the front door. And you can get all of these things from the AMPTP, but if you don't get those strong restrictions on AI, you've just given them the key to the front door and none of those other gains will matter. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested because when you were talking about the AI thing right there, you, you sort of you shifted between hats in the conversation. You you had you had your SAG hat on for a second. You had your WGA hat on for a second. You had your DGA hat on for a second. And that's one of the interesting things about this moment of all of these guilds and all of these agreements coming up at the same time is that simultaneously, obviously, every guild has to do what's best for its members. And yet there is the pressure for solidarity. What have you 
learned about what the challenges are of that? And how has that impacted the conversations that you're having with people out on the line, et cetera? Well, you have leverage in a negotiation if they need you. So I do believe this is the last time any guild on its own will have any leverage. Because you can see, you know, if people want, they can go to my um, my Instagram or, or Twitter page. And I, I put up a lot of demos. I put up two new ones today that are actually quite good. And you can see the progression of these AI films. I mean, you know, I'm just showing short. I haven't seen a full length one yet, but... Um, I believe in three years, sooner than three years, or, you know, three years when our contracts are up again, uh, I don't think any one union is going to have any leverage at all. I don't think, I think in three years we need to, we do need to negotiate together in order to have any leverage. In fact, I'm hoping even the IATSE and Teamsters can somehow get on our cycle so that all five of us can say, if you still want to work, if you still want to do like real human filmmaking, you got to, you got to step up and, and give each of these guilds what they need. Yeah. Not necessarily I- what they want, you know? Record, yeah. Sorry, say that again. IATSE and Teamsters, their, their deals are up next year, by the way, just for our, our listeners who may not know. That's right. They're up next year. So they're two years behind us on the, on the cycle. Do I have that right? Two years or one year? Two years. Um, and who knows, maybe they'll make a two-year deal and then we'll be on the same cycle. But at the very least, SAG, DGA, WGA will be on the same cycle. I mean, provided this, this strike doesn't you know, go on for a year. Um, and, uh, you know, WGA has different needs for its members than DGA, than SAG. Um, there are some overlaps, of course, we all know, um, but I think in three years, they'll just go, yeah, we're, we're, we're not really sure we need to meet with you guys. We're not really sure we need to be signatories anymore because, I mean, it depends on what they get. Look, if they get permission to, here's one of the things that's going on. I'd like to know if the legal departments from any of the streamers or the studios have gone to any of these large generative AI models, these companies, and asked to see a list of what films have been fed in. Have they gone to them and said, I want to see if any of our films are on there, you're going to delete this entire training set because you can't unwind something like that, right? But my hunch is that they're not. And I think, and this, and I tweeted about this the other day, this, these are the same companies I mean, not the streamers, but the studios. These are the same companies that would get the FBI to descend on your house and get you arrested for downloading, illegally downloading one of their films. This same people, not the same people, these same companies are now, I think, hoping that feeding in 100 years of filmmaking and series into generative AI models illegally or, you know, This is the most massive copyright violation in the history of the United States. I think they're hoping that that just spins wildly out of control by by third parties so they can come to the guilds, they can continue to come to the guilds as they have been and saying, but everyone else is doing it. You got to let us do it. Why else would you just, 
let these companies do whatever they want with all of your copyrighted material. And I tell you this, I feel like the studios have lost hold of what their competitive advantage was. And that was their relationships with all of us. Okay. Access to us, to the, to the directors, to the writers, to the actors. And they started chasing that Netflix model and they've lost billions of dollars doing that. And now I think they have it in their minds that they can chase the generative AI tech companies. And I'm here that, that the spread between what they understand in their jobs and what those companies understand within their jobs, there are, it's a million miles of, of space in between those two things. And I think if they start then chasing that model, thinking they can compete with that, my God, just, just light the whole place up on fire because you'll never win against those companies. I think they should, they should entrench on their, on their competitive, you know, advantage. And hopefully it's not lost completely and say, you know, and go and get anything that's copyrighted pulled, you know, I mean, you can't pull it off the models. Just get the models deleted. If your work's in there, if your copyrighted work is in there. So the fact they haven't done that indicates what I said, that they think they can, they think they can compete with them. And it's, it's almost comical. That seems like a very good point to wrap up on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Justine. We really appreciate it. Thanks for asking. Thanks, Justine. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Minx returns for season two, not on Max, but on Stars. Paramount Plus has yet another Taylor Sheridan show, this one called Special Ops Lioness. Freeform makes its first foray into adult animation with Praise PD. And Steven Soderbergh has a web series called Command Z that is not affiliated with the AMPTP. Dan, what you got? Command Z was sort of odd because no one knew that it even existed. And then suddenly last week they dropped a trailer for it and people were like, wait, what the hell? How is there another web series that Steven Soderbergh directed? Didn't Steven Soderbergh just have a web series last week with Full Circle? And the answer is yes, of course he did. Um, and this is another one. And Command Z is is kind of a kind of a goof and it's a it's a well-meaning goof and that's the primary reason why I don't have any particular enmity towards it and so you know good on good on them for that and the the core principle of it is that you pay 7.99 to watch what is effectively an 8 episode 90 minute series and if you're thinking gee those sound like quick bites of television yes indeed steven soderbergh has made a quibby here that is uh that is the thing that he has done and sure why not except you can't change the aspect ratio you have to watch it on the website and that's what it is and 7.99 and they say that all proceeds are going to a couple of different uh charities and that's fine and the entire message of the series the series is about x number of years into a post-apocalyptic future three people are enlisted by an eccentric billionaire who exists only in ai form to utilize a strange time travel device to go back and attempt to avert 
environmental disaster. And so they do the strange thing, which involves staring at a time machine slash washer dryer, drinking a strange viscous fluid and listening to the soundtrack of mahogany. And they inhabit people's bodies. But ultimately what they discover, and this is not really a big spoiler, is that sometimes you can avert disaster by taking small steps. And that to me seems like a perfectly valid message is that it's fun to have a time travel device and to believe that a time travel device will allow you to go back in time and kill baby Hitler or shut down a, a oil refinery before a disaster or whatever. But sometimes it's the little steps and the little choices that we make as people that can save the world and it's never too late to start and it's never too soon to start. So get on it and make individual personal steps. Totally fine. As an actual series, I I would describe Command Z as really, really, really satirically limp. Uh, it, it It is not hugely funny, hugely insightful, hugely interesting in its view of science fiction. Um, much of anything. Uh, like, I think if you look at it as I make a $7.99 donation to a charity, and I'm not sure that the email I got after paying for it told me that it was tax deductible. So we'll see about that. Um, but, you know, and and then I happened to get a couple chuckles out of something with Michael Sarah and uh, JJ Malley and Roy Wood Jr. and Chloe Radcliffe and a couple of guest stars. Most of the guest stars not really there very much. Liev Schreiber is, I believe, like second or third build, and he's in one episode and is generally upstaged by a, a adorable dog. It's it's really just not very funny. It's really just not very insightful, but its heart is absolutely and completely in the right place. Uh, the, um, the charities I believe are a, a pediatric AIDS foundation out of New York and the Boston university center for anti-racist research. And then in addition, there are calls to action involving a climate change organization, a anti-disinformation organization and uh, the run for something pro-democracy website. Again, completely and totally, its heart is in its right place, in the right place throughout. As to whether it's a good show to watch um, on Steven Soderbergh's website, not really. It's, It's kind of, it is absolutely him trying a new distribution method. But even then, Several problematic in, uh, individuals have done similar things in the past, whether it's uh, Joss Whedon with Dr. Horrible um, coming out of The Last Strike, or whether it's Louis C.K. with Horace and Pete, which made many of our top 10 lists in the year it came out before the whole, you know, Louis C.K. thing. So, like I said, absolutely problematic individuals doing this. So, so keep your nose clean, uh, Stephen Soderbergh. Um but yeah, so that absolutely is uh, a TV show that existed. Um, now, as for the other major shows that are premiering this weekend, well, there are options and some of them are are pretty good. Um, Minx season two. It did, of course, move from Max or HBO Max, whatever we're calling it now, to stars. And the cancellation of the show happened deep, deep into production. And so 
this is not really an indication of what a star's version of this show looks like. So don't, you know, don't read anything into anything. It's funny because the first episode for people who watched the first season, everyone knows that it ended with basically Minx, the magazine started by Ophelia Lovibond's uh, Joyce, looking for a new home. And so it's actually kind of funny if you happen to watch it and you go, ooh, what's happening on the screen is very similar to what the producers and creators did trying to find the show a new home. This was not in any way attempting to be that. So like I can tell you that the return of Futurama, which I can't talk about because of embargoes, but I can tell you that the first episode has a lot of jokes about rebooting and and whatever, and that's kind of what it does. This is an entirely accidental piece of uh, <laughs> of whatever it is. Um, I like the first season very much. The second season I'm kind of mixed on in the sense that I think it's a much broader season. And I think it's a much broader season in the sense that it's, I would say, significantly funnier than the first season. Um, the first season was was absolutely funny. It was just sort of funny while also being a a polemic. And this is maybe less of a polemic. It's it's maybe more funny. And it's it's trying to be broader. It's trying to be more accessible. There's a lot of cameos by famous people um, among, and I don't mean guest stars. I mean, Carl Sagan is a character in this season, for example. It's kind of funny. Um, and I think it's also broader in the sense that it feels like maybe they had some sense, not that the show was about to leave HBO Max, but maybe that the show's life might be finite. Because I would say that this season has maybe three or four seasons worth of storytelling and character transitions that are crammed into only eight episodes. And at times it feels a little whiplashy. At times you aren't completely sure how much uh, actual historical time has passed between episodes. And in some cases, it's no historical time at all that has passed between episodes. And yet characters have undergone real personal character shifts in what appears to have been overnight. And sometimes that's a little on the odd side, but I like so much of the cast of this show. Um, I mentioned Ophelia Lovibond. I think she's very, very funny. Uh, Jake Johnson is is hilarious. He plays depraved and sort of 70s scruffy extraordinarily well. A lot of the supporting performances are really wonderful. Jessica Lowe and, and Lennon Parnham in particular are, are, are just really hilarious. And both of their characters undergo very interesting character transitions. I think the season is also very invested in what's happening with uh, Adara Victor's Tina and with Oscar Montoya's Richie. I think the show is this season very conscious of kind of the intersectionality of what happens at a women's magazine like this and what happens in the transition um, when suddenly a magazine that was devoted to women and giving adult entertainment to women, when suddenly it turns out shockingly that a magazine full of naked men also has an audience among gay men. And so you get these different perspectives on when feminism and the gay rights movement intersect and when they sometimes bump heads. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to that this season. Um, I, I, in general, really enjoyed this season while finding it kind of choppy and bumpy. And I don't know if there really was anything to be done about that. And I don't think it had anything to do with either a shift from networks, because again, it was already written before then, or or really with a feeling that HBO Max could 
cancel the show at any time. I just think that there were things that they wanted to get to and that maybe there was very little way to do it without being a little choppy. Uh, but I'm happy to have Minx back. I, this this is a fun show. Again, great costumes, great cinematography. Uh, Leslie, you want to go back and uh, tell the kids when they can listen to our really good conversation with Ellen Rappaport from the first season. Lots and lots of talk about penises. Yeah, that would be in episode 159 for March 11th, 2022. Excellent. Uh, Freeform, a network that at this point, I don't completely understand what its brand is. And we we discussed this couple weeks ago on the pod when uh, Single Drunk Female was canceled and pulled off of Hulu entirely. And you went over what was actually in Freeform's uh, <laughs> pipeline. And I, I don't know, but Praise PD is an animated comedy. It's created by uh, Anna Drazen. And it's, it's solid and likable. It's not great it's not hilarious but i see how there are a lot of funny things in it it's its premise is a indecisive new york city fashion magazine assistant basically you know basically one of the characters from devil wears prada but not meryl streep uh she's struggling along with her life she doesn't really know what she's doing or where she's going. And then her mother, voiced very amusingly by Christine Baranski, uh, plays a video cassette for her in which her father, played by Stephen Root, her father who she never met and didn't know, tells her that if she's watching the video, he must have died, but he's left her a small town in, well, somewhere down in the South, I believe West Carolina or something, whatever it is, that's the joke. She's shocked to discover that her father was a cult leader and that what she has inherited is less actually a town and more a cult. And so this is a woman who is extremely indecisive, as I mentioned, and now she has to become a leader of men and women. And main character is voiced amusingly by Annie Murphy. And the rest of the supporting cast is is just really, really great. You have John Cho as the hunky uh, sort of fix-it man in the small town who inevitably bumps heads with our leading character, but you know they're going to get it on eventually. The show has a very good sense of conventions of uh, both romantic comedies and of the burgeoning genre of cult documentaries. And and there's, there's really a lot of clever stuff here. I, I just wish it was more consistently laugh-out-loud funny. I wish it was more consistently deep- in its thoughts, but it has a lot of very, very random pop culture references. There were times, and I don't want to overstate this because it was only occasional moments, but there were times that I felt the show had a kind of the other two version of humor that people would respond to, mostly in how it handles pop culture, I think, more than anything else. But but there's some of that to it. And so I, I think people could probably be amused by this show. I assume obviously repeats will be on Hulu because that's how these things go. And so, and so yeah, Praise PD ha has things about it that I think are, are amusing. And I can imagine a version of this show that could eventually become really good. It is not that show instantly. And again, I've seen four episodes. So who knows uh, when it comes to shows that I've only seen very, very limited samples of, well, this weekend, yeah, another Taylor Sheridan show, Special Ops, Lioness. 
Uh, it is premiering with a two-part, two-episode premiere. And despite the fact that it's premiering in just three days, critics have been sent one episode. So draw your own conclusions as you see fit. This is not particularly out of keeping with the Taylor Sheridan shows, um, whether that is because all Taylor Sheridan shows are pretty much hand to mouth at every given second because he's doing everything on all of them and therefore nothing moves quickly. And so that's why there aren't screeners. I would still say that there's a second episode that's going to air on Sunday. So you could have sent it to critics, but whatever. Um, But also he probably at this point doesn't feel any tremendous warmth towards critics. So that's entirely fine. Uh, The thing that is going to make people excited about special ops lioness is the number of big stars associated. Uh, Zoe Saldana is the lead, but then the cast also features Nicole Kidman, Morgan Freeman, Michael Kelly from house of cards, And I can definitely tell you that you don't want to be watching it for Nicole Kidman, Morgan Freeman, and Michael Kelly, at least based on the first episode. Uh, Based on the first episode, Nicole Kidman and Michael Kelly are in one scene, and there is no indication from that one scene why either of those actors would have signed on for this. I assume they will have much more to do in the future. I have no idea. And Morgan Freeman is not so much as spotted or mentioned in the first episode, the actual uh, here, the actual star of the show, at least in this sense, is uh, is Laisla de Oliveira, um, who plays a young woman who, for reasons of plot convenience, has a background that's half Mexican, half Syrian, but she grows up in Oklahoma and stuff, and she finds herself in a very, very bad place in life. And she stumbles into a Marine recruitment center, which offers her salvation. And she becomes part of a program that Zoe Saldana's character uh, runs where the basic goal is that they find terrorist targets, find out who the terrorist loved ones are, put sleeper agents in to befriend the loved ones and find out where the terrorists are going to be and then blow it all to shit. And, you know, my, my understanding is that this might be based on a real program and that's fine. So definitely not for me to say it's unrealistic, just for me to say that it's really kind of excruciatingly bad television. Uh, It's, it's just so clunkily written and, and just so clumsy in almost all of its character introductions. Uh, Zoe Saldana at least has a substantial part, so I understand why she's here. Um, and Lacewood Oliveira is okay. Most of the supporting characters don't have much to do, and so it's kind of a it's kind of a joint commercial for the Marines and the CIA and any means necessary law enforcement. It it feels like a kind of pulpy. Um, fiction, not so much the same kind that I would say that something like The Diplomat felt like or The Night Agent. I think it's pulpier than that. It's it's a lot more like it's a lot more like The Terminal List. It's a lot more like I don't know. It's a lot more like various Tom Clancy books. And look, as I as I said with The Terminal List as well, 
there is an audience that is going to be perfectly happy to watch this and the stars will probably get some people in. I don't exactly know because having seen only one episode, it seems very contrived and expositional and not very well executed so far, but they have to establish the characters in the world and all of that. So maybe episode two and three will be much better. I have absolutely no way of knowing. Uh, the The pilot is not very good at all. It's It's badly written, forgettably acted, decently enough shot, but, you know, John Hillcoat directed it instead of Taylor Sheridan, who wrote all of it, but yeah, it's it's just not very good, unfortunately. Uh, but what can you do? So to recap everything, you can go to Steven Soderbergh's website and watch Command Z. Think of it as a seven ninety nine donation to charity, and then a couple of jokes about time travel. That's okay. Uh, Minx has moved from HBO Max or Max or whatever we're calling it these days to Stars and. The second season is broader, but also in that case, funnier, and it's still a really enjoyable show. Praise PD has moments. I can see how it would be very good. Again, it's an animated comedy on Freeform, lots of good guest voices, and a pretty solid perspective on pop culture and our obsession with cults. And Special Ops Lioness, let's get real. If you were going to watch it, ain't nothing a critic could tell you that would cause you to not watch it and if you weren't going to watch it anyway i can tell you not to watch it anyway but you weren't going to watch it anyway so i'm completely superfluous in this process with that particular show well for more of dan's weekly recommendations be sure to subscribe to the hollywood reporters now see this newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash tv dash reviews for more that feels like a good place to wrap things up Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, whatever your various... MySpace, Facebook, exactly. Uh, she's, she's at Snoot It with two O's. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N, uh... But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and as Leslie mentioned, we would love to do a mailbag segment as our first segment each week in lieu of headlines that at this point don't exist. So if you have questions for us, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com, tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.